0: listener production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis, and welcome to The Wellness Collective, the podcast dedicated to helping women feel happier, healthier and better. I'm a natural women's health expert with over 17 years experience and I'm passionate about helping women feel great in their bodies and minds. On this podcast, I cut through all the noise in the wellness space by interviewing experts from around the globe to discover the very best ideas and theories that will help you improve every aspect of your health. So I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You've searched somebody's name on the internet and it just wasn't what you expected to find. That was certainly what happened as I was searching and doing some research for our guest today, Radia Glees. Of course, I found that she was an author and a nutritionist and a biochemical analyst, but I didn't expect to also find that at some point in her life, she was a cult leader's wingwoman, which is probably how she became who she is today and can tell the story and really teach us about narcissists and narcissistic behavior, especially in leaders, which you're going to be absolutely fascinated about. But I had so many questions at this point. I was like, put, hang on, put the narcissistic tendencies and behaviors aside, which I also was very interested in learning about. How do you become a a cult leader's wing woman? How do you even join a cult? How do you, why do you join a cult? What happens in the cult? Like, I just had so many questions I was busting to ask her. And so it was fun. I got to do all of that. And I know you're going to love today's interview with Radia Glees. I guess let's get into it. So today I have a very special guest with me, Radia Glees. Thank you so much for joining me on The Wellness Collective. Sure.
1: Happy to be here. Uh,
0: It's um, a pleasure to have you. When I googled you, there was a lot of things that came up and I'm like, wow, where do we start? I wasn't quite (laughs) prepared for what I was going to find. And not that, you know, you should never judge a book by its cover, but I was like, oh, wow, we've got a story to tell here. When I Googled, I felt things like, you know, there was in the Google search, author, nutritionist, but then there was the cult leader's wing woman. And that you speak a lot now about recognizing narcissistic behaviors and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I need to ask you, how did you get here?" <laughs> how not did you idea. get here to where you are today because there's a lot of stuff there and I was kind of like, "Where do we start?"
1: Uh. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, I want to clarify that. That was a <laughs> that was a misinterpretation from from a uh, probably the star or whatever. I was not his wing woman at all. I was his advisor on legal issues um, and health issues, but I was hardly his wing woman. Mostly-
0: It makes for a good story though, right? You've got to, you know,
1: (laughs) when it giggles and it's at the top. (laughs) Except for when, honestly, Natalie, when I think of that, it just creeps me out even more. Whoa, wing woman. No. Um, He was gay. He really didn't have, uh, you know, he was more interested in the males being his wingmen than, right. than the females. He had a few, he had a few, but I, I w- was in a kind of a different position. It's sort of why I wrote this book. When I wrote the book and Holy hell came out in two in 2016, that was really Will Allen, the filmmaker's story. And it was um, tragic and enlightening at the same time. I left the group in uh, 2016 I really didn't rekindle my relationship with a lot of those people for years after. So it took a while to catch up. Um, because I was demonized and ostracized and you know, all of that. Believing? Oh God, yes. Yeah, oh, right.
0: Yes. Can I you said 2016 is when you left. When did you join?
1: I joined that's a little little bit tricky, that complexity, because I kind of got connected with a really good friend of his back in 1979. And that's where, you know, the whole theme sort of started. And then I was introduced to him as a friend by a mutual friend in 1982. And then I officially sort of got, you know, connected with his group, in Los Angeles in 1984, and that went all the way up to 2006. But the film, Holy Hell, was not produced and released until 2016. So it was a good 10 years after I had left. And when I saw the film, it was funny to see your life on the big screen with a whole bunch of strangers for the first time. And I didn't know the details of some of the guys in the film. I didn't know the details of the abuse until that film. Wow! So I was sort of in a state of shock when when I'm sitting in the audience and in the Q&A, as I describe in my book, I was sort of very stoic and whatever. And when I got out of the theater, I this was in the, at the Sundance Film Festival, and I got out of the theater and I just broke down because I wasn't aware of the details until then. So yeah, that's wow. I, I wanted to yeah I wanted to write this book because you know it, it, there's probably 150 of us and there's probably 150 different stories. You know that's sort of the skill of a narcissist they can become like chameleons. They'll be whatever you want them to be. And uh, so I had a different relationship than a lot of the guys and a lot of, you know, the other members.
0: How many members were there at sort of any one time, roughly? I guess people came and went?
1: Yeah, like I said, roughly there was about 150.
0: Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So like you said, well, there's 150 versions of everybody's own experience.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And I mean, 25 years is a long time, obviously there's this element of, um, yes, you recognised that there was these narcissistic behaviours, but there was something that kept you there. There's something that you wanted to, was it a sense of belonging? Like, why does somebody, how did you find yourself there in the first place, I guess, is the question. Well,
1: sure. You know, when I wrote the book, basically in 2016, and I saw the film, Simultaneously, um, 2016 was a rather momentous year for America. So I saw when the uh, former president was coming down the escalator, um, I noticed some similar traits. Mm. (laughs) And so, you know, this narcissistic behavior. And I got very interested in really asking the question, how does a person, how does this happen? When I was in the Q and A's, you know, a lot of people, they saw the film and they said, yeah, I get it. I would have joined that cult, you know, or it wasn't a cult in the beginning. Nobody wakes up Natalie one day and says, you know, I think I'm going to join a cult. You know, Um, it's kind of like a, um, a slow boil, like a frog in warm water, you know, and it becomes that in the very beginning. It wasn't. And like I said, I met the leader who was not a leader at the time. Through mutual friends, and so he was basically a friend of mine. And um, basically, the whole thing was about these meditation techniques that were brought to this country by Maharaji. And Jaime was a complete fraud—a complete fraud from the get-go, which I did not find out till years after I left. I did not know the the depth of his con so to speak. So he said, oh, he had a master and he had blah, blah, blah. And he had all these stories. They were all lies. They were all bullshit, you wow. know, but he stole the techniques from Maharaji. And so we were, you know, at the time you, you have to realize I grew up in Los Angeles in the fifties and sixties. And at that time, there were so many cultural changes and shifts happening. So many you know, from civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, you know, everybody. And there was a cult on every block in Los Angeles. You know, you had the Scientologists and the Moonies and the the Hare Krishnas and everybody was doing everything. And there was just such an expansion uh, of consciousness. As I mentioned in my book, I talk about my life being raised as a Catholic in a Catholic school, although I left Catholicism at the age of reason, which to the Catholics is seven, Um, but I still was in a Catholic school. So I was enamored with the saints and the stories of the saints. I wanted to be a saint, not, oh, look at me, aren't I a beautiful person? But I, I wanted what they were having, you know, all of the stories and the statues and the paintings of these beautiful saints in this transcendental state, you know, so I wanted that transcendental state. I wanted that Direct communion with God. So I was 14 and I was in uh, a freshman in high school, and they were teaching comparative religions. And uh, so they were teaching Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and all that. And I came across a word in Hinduism, Nirvana. And I asked the teacher, What does this word mean? And he said, Well, Apparently, there's yogis in India that through a certain meditation experience God directly. So I set out from the time I was 14 to look for anyone who had that experience, those meditations. And it was not until I was about 26 that I found someone who said, yes, I have those uh, meditation techniques. So that's the meditation techniques that we're talking about and Jaime, like I said, he just stole them and he made himself a self-appointed guru. We didn't know that or realize that at the time. Uh, he did turn us on to these techniques. And, you know, in the beginning, it was never about him. It was always about the knowing, which it used to be called the knowledge, but he changed that name. And uh, so we were interested in the meditation and interested in sort of a contemporary communal life. We're really healthy and really into, you know, healthy food. And there was a lot of uh, gays in the community because this started in West Hollywood and he was gay. And there was a lot of wonderful, you know, all kinds of different people that were musicians and artists and dancers and yoga teachers and chiropractors and nutritionists and things like that. So it was a perfect collection for all of us. So it didn't start out being all about him. It started out about being in the community and being practicing these things and learning how to have selfless service and learning how to transcend our ego and our mind in order to stay connected to this meditation. So in the beginning, he said, connect to God's love. And after a while, it became connect to my love.
0: Fascinating. And do you think that that was, it evolved, obviously, but do you think that Mm -hmm. that was always the plan or was it something that just developed or is that the behavior of a narcissist?
1: That's a really good question. And, you know, in my kind of journey in writing this book, I went back to people that were with him before me and some will say, yes, this was totally premeditated Um, That he planned to do this from the very beginning. He was an actor, a bad actor, a really bad actor. (laughs) He came from Venezuela. He moved to Hollywood, tried to get into films, was in Rosemary's Baby as an extra, but he couldn't get, he couldn't launch anything but porn in Hollywood. So he was a good actor in one particular scene, though, and that was to be this guru. And he was really good at that. So, yeah, you know,
0: (laughs) it's, I think it's fascinating to people, I guess, like you and I, that our brains, I don't think they work that way. But obviously, Mm. there are people that, that I just, they obviously have an amazing imagination, will to create something. Because for the lay person or for the everyday person, not lay, the everyday person, I would imagine that where they're listening to this going, who are these people that imagine these things or create it or have the ability to do that? But You're saying that you've seen trends now that you can recognise that in your own experience. You can see this in other people. And there's not everybody, obviously, but there are standout people that you now would probably have fairly strong warning signs, maybe even on first encounters of meeting them.
1: Right. And this is kind of why I did this deep dive exploration. I probably have 284 citations I did a lot of research both in psychology and in politics and what have you to really study and and understand the behavior and the the psyche of the narcissist of the malignant narcissist everybody's got a little narcissism in us you know this is what gives us self confidence and what have you it's when that becomes fed and so I I talk about you know there's a feedback loop between the followers and the leader. And, you know, when I first was writing this book, the first uh, working title of it was Duped. And then I got, as I got through, you know, as I started developing it, I said, no, uh, uh-uh. this isn't about him. This isn't about the leader. This is about the followers. Because the leader can do nothing without their followers. A narcissist must have that feedback loop. And all they do is figure out what you want or what you're afraid of, And then supply that for you. And in in return, you supply the narcissist with what they need, which is constant self-aggrandization. And it is a pathology. So I wanted people to understand how dangerous this pathology is when it is in a position of leadership, whether it's leadership of a small community or a corporation or even a family member, to running a country. These pathologies are extremely dangerous. And the one thing that I found was they're incurable. And the reason why they're incurable is because they cannot see that they have a problem. It's everybody else. Right. So that's a dangerous formula.
0: We all know people that we wonder, are they narcissistic? Like, I wonder if they are. And and you swing from, I think they are. Oh, no, they're not. Especially if you've been in a relationship or had someone very close in your life that mm-hmm. when they're good, they're really good. And when they're bad, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. But we keep on going back. And to more to that point too, I think it's a very interesting like you said at the beginning, what didn't start like that? But sometimes the bigger the lie, the bigger the lies, the more we believe them. It's it's fascinating to me that that's just the way that we operate as human beings. And so at, you didn't realize this until you were you were on the outside or you realized whilst you were there?
1: Well, that's an interesting question too. I started to see... You know, like I said, I had a a kind of a unique relationship with him because he handled everybody differently. So the way he handled me was he was my benevolent male. You know, he was my friend much more. I didn't worship him like a lot of people. And so I had a much more candid relationship with him. And especially because my father was a lawyer and because I was sort of Grew up in the law. Whenever he had a legal issue or whatever, I would hire the lawyers. I would, you know, speak on his behalf, etc., and then go advise him. So sometimes I describe myself in the book as um, sort of the Michael Cohen of. I don't know if you know who Michael Cohen is, but he was Trump's lawyer who yeah. is now in prison. I was sort of the Michael Cohen, sort of the the fixer, the consigliere. That puts you in a different position because I was not really in the subordinate position. I was in the position of being an advisor, which kind of makes, that's why they want to interpret that as I'm his right hand. No, I wasn't, but in certain capacities I was, you Mm. know? So what happened was we had an issue uh, in Los Angeles in the uh, early 90, like 1989, 90, where we had someone who was in the group who was sort of a, a dangerous stalker. And he was stalking one of the girls that was very young and beautiful. And he was very old and unattractive. And he could not accept that she didn't love him. So his excuse was that it had to be that she was being brainwashed by this cult, of which he was in. So he blamed the leader and he blamed everybody and you know she worked for me so he wanted to hurt me and he threatened to have the leader killed and he was a very dangerous man and so i had hired private detectives to see what are we dealing with turns out he had been institutionalized for 17 years he had several uh spousal abuse and several arrests for assault and battery so he was for real right and so i put him in jail so, when that happened, you know, he was sending all kinds of very dangerous and scary letters that he was leaving on the girl's car. And so that really triggered the paranoia in the leader his personality started to really shift from, Oh God is beautiful. And I'm wonderful to, Oh my God, they're out to get me, you know? And so it was at that point that we left Los Angeles and we started to travel. I had money at the time. And so I traveled a lot with him and the elders, the, the immediate entourage was with him. And there was, I don't know, maybe eight people, eight to 10 people. And, um, this is when I really saw him start to unravel. And this was in 1991. And I, I started to really have my doubts about, you know, like all of us sort of secretly were going, where's God in all of this? Mm. Like, what are you so paranoid about? You know, but of course he knew what he was doing behind closed doors. We didn't. I didn't. But he did. So the paranoia was there was some legitimate you know, fear there that he might be uh, found out. So it was at that point that I started getting disenchanted with him. We were traveling a lot and I finally found a place in Austin and I'm the one that brought us to Austin. And I bought his house here in Austin and we moved. And so it was about in 1995, Natalie, that I really got tired of him, really disenchanted with him. I no longer saw him as a, an enlightened being. I had seen too much of his frailty and his derangedness. But again, I didn't know that he was abusing anybody. So he became sort of like an eccentric uncle you know, what are you going to do? Throw him out? Mm. No. You mm. know, he was sort of the glue that held us all yeah. together. Our community still was very beautiful and we were still doing very beautiful things. And and I loved them and they were my family and my best friends. So I didn't leave, even though I thought about leaving in 1995, I didn't leave for 11 years.
0: Yeah. So
1: I was conflicted
0: Possibly but back I also, and forward all that time from then on, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and I also knew I knew the consequences of my leaving. One and everything that I knew would happen did. I lost 150 friends in one day. Right. I was demonized and ostracized. He very much like Trump turned everybody against me. I was now the uh, <clears throat> the person that was threatening the community. I was threatening him. No, I wasn't. Um, but he would but tell he them. He would
0: believe oh. that, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so he saw me as being a threat to him because I had legal papers, I had his birth certificate, I had other things that other people didn't have. So I knew things about him that he was afraid I would expose. So, yeah, it was complicated. Absolutely.
0: And so now, fast forward, you've recognised these same traits and characteristics in the big, wide world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And... I'm sure you talk a lot more about that in your book in terms of you've made reference to Trump.
1: Many leaders throughout mm. history, we see this behaviour, a typical behaviour, in the narcissists that become authoritarian leaders. It's the same playbook. They all are pathological liars. They all need to be constantly have attention, constantly being self aggrandized constantly putting down anyone around them if they're getting more attention than, you know, these are really typical characteristics of narcissistic leaders. You can find this kind of person also in corporations. You can find celebrities that have these kinds of behaviours, you know, even a spouse that can be very oppressive.
0: But you're saying also that the reason that these types of people are so attractive is because they solve problems for people. And in return, they feel validated by solving people's problems.
1: Well, and that's interesting too. Do they really solve them or do they... Well, they feel like they are. Do they con you into thinking that they're going to solve them? And in most cases, it is a con. You know, when you pull back the curtain and see the little man behind the curtain, usually they are a fraud. That's why they are pathological liars. They will self-aggrandize themselves. I mean, Saddam Hussein had a movie made of him where he literally said that he walked a thousand miles with a bullet in his leg. Just (laughs) propaganda and all kinds of stories of self-aggrandizing. You know, we saw Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un doing the same thing. You know, we've seen Hitler, you know, and Hitler was an out-of-work artist, right? Mussolini was a, a writer, a journalist. They would build themselves up to be bigger than life, and most of it was fraudulent. It was a lie. And I go into the book sort of in depth of why we fall for that. And it's even more difficult when it's a collective deception. So there were people within the hierarchy of the Buddha field that knew that he was deceiving, but they didn't say anything. Well, I wonder
0: too, because of the same reasons, like, you know, you've got this community, you have a sense of belonging, you've got people around you that understand you and that love you, and you've built something that's really insular.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, when they're that big, anyone who wants to tell the truth, the group would never believe them. Right. They'd never believe them. And they would, as he did to me, they would turn around. That was actually the reason, you know, I I refer to in my book, that line in the sand. And unless you're not a sociopath, most people have a line in the sand that they will not cross. But there's a lot of gray lines that they'll step over before they reach that final line in the sand. And my line in the sand was hearing about him trying to seduce a, a heterosexual man in his hypnotherapy, my God, that's how he made his living. So, I mean, we literally every week would hand him our psyche and pay for it. And so we would, you know, he knew all of our fears. He knew all of the shadows in in our closet, you know, he knew everything about us. So whenever we would challenge him, he would use that against us. And I did challenge him a lot. And he would say, well, Doradia, you are projecting your father on me, knowing that my father was abusive or whatever. And it made sense at the time. And that's what they will do. So this young man was uh, in his hypnotherapy session and he tried to seduce him and the the guy wouldn't have it. And so he walked out. And as soon as he did, um, Jaime... You know, just subterfuged everything, called all his friends and said, He's going to tell you that I tried to come on to him, but I just want to tell you he's got a thing for me and don't buy it. You know me, I'm this pious little whatever, you know, another lie. And he turned or tried to turn all this guy's friends against him. That's typical. It's what Trump does on a daily basis. Um, This is a pathology. This Mm -hmm. is what they will all do because they cannot be wrong. They cannot cannot ruin their brand. And their brand is whether you're a leader of a nation or whether you're a enlightened yogi, that is their brand. And when they do that, they will fight tooth and nail to maintain that brand, including lie, subterfuge, even kill in some cases. Really important to bring to the surface because people say, Oh, I'd never fall for that, really. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. You know, and it's it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with education. I'm neither unintelligent or uneducated. Um, it has to do with I, I always I use the expression, and you may not know from Australia who Bernie Madoff was. Bernie Madoff is, spending several lifetime sentences for being one of the biggest Ponzi schemers in Wall Street. And I always say to people, do you really think that all of the millionaires that he schemed were dumb, were uneducated? Has nothing to do with intelligence. Right. It has to do with giving you what you think you want. An
0: element of, do you feel maybe that people that were joining were looking for something you know, looking for something to be filled as well.
1: Oh, of course, right. and that's that's why, in my story, it's in three parts. So the first part, I talk about my childhood, and I make a point. My childhood would be insignificant if it wasn't showing you what some of the psychological, developmental, psychological triggers that cause people to want to whatever, join a group, join a club. So I use the term that is a psychological term called um, secure attachment. And as a child, I didn't have a secure attachment. My parents were pretty much MIA most of the time. And that was not uncommon, especially in the 50s and 60s in Los Angeles with upper echelon parents who were successful in their business and whatever, you had children because that's what you did. It was like we were furniture. Yeah. And so I was looking for a family. Mm. I was looking for uh, like-minded people. I grew up in Brentwood, which is where O.J. Simpson lived right. in Los Angeles. And I grew up in private girls' schools and all of that. And our family was not the super rich, but I certainly grew up with the right. super rich and so it was very superficial to me and it was very, you know, mediocre and uninteresting and I wanted something more. I wanted something right. higher.
0: I read somewhere that you said, yeah, none of us were brainwashed. We were, we were looking for this, which I think sums sure. up what you were talking about. You know, there was a, an element of needing something filled that hadn't previously been filled. Yeah. So you said yeah. that the first part of your book is your, that story and then the second and the third parts. Could you elaborate on those?
1: Yeah, so the first part's called the journey, and that's my childhood all the way up to actually meeting Jaime. And then the second part's called the Buddha Field, which is my time in the Buddha field. And I one of the reasons why I was so compelled to write this section is because I have heard podcasts about Holy Hell. And they are just, I can understand why they would think that they saw what they saw, but you can't write a 30-year story in a 100-minute documentary. You just can't do it. It's impossible. So I heard people's idea of what they thought they saw in holy hell and what was really happening were like totally different. So I really wanted to give a different perspective of the Buddha field. I've heard on podcasts, you know, oh, the Buddha field came from Um, pure land Buddhism. No, it didn't. The Buddha field was just a nickname. We called it. It didn't have anything to do with Buddhism. And to be fair, you know, some of the things that were said in the film were wrong. Like Demetrius in the film said, uh, yeah, we called it the booty field because everybody was fucking everybody. No. As a matter of fact, it was almost the opposite. Some people thought that they had to be celibate and so they left because they didn't want that kind of lifetime. So, you know, there's so much misconception of what people think they see. So I really wanted to give them a a much more in-depth perspective of what our life was and, and why someone would stay. You know, what were we doing when you look at the film and you see us dancing around in the, in the woods? You know, we look like a bunch of crazy people. So I really fill in the blanks of what are we doing in the forest and what, are, what is he doing and all of that. So I really give you a lot of depth of what the reality was of what you think you see in the film. I also used the parallel through it. I take from the um, diagnostic manual, statistical manual of psychological disease. And I use that to, I use excerpts out of it as we go through and show where Jaime was all of those characteristics that are in that manual, as well as Trump, as well as Hitler, as well as all of these other leaders. So, and then the third part, third part is called reflections and that's really where i'm looking back and doing a much deeper evaluation of wtf you know like who are the kinds of people that that join and there's really i kind of talk about three different types of people you've got your hummingbirds Hummingbirds are people that don't know what they want specifically, but they know what they have. They're not happy with, so they'll sort of flitter from this little spiritual community to that religion, or this or that idea, or this this political ideology or that. But they're not completely committed, and in in the political realm they don't spend a lot of in-depth getting the facts they just sort of glom on to sort of what they've you know been indoctrinated maybe as a young person and then the second second type of person is the soldiers on a mission um, I fall into that category I knew and I was looking for enlightenment from the time I was 14 from the time I heard about the word nirvana so I had a specific goal. And so when I met people who said, yes, we can show you those techniques to get to that goal, I was willing to step over a lot of gray lines to do what it took to become God-realized or enlightened. And I and I saw and read throughout my life various different spiritual books and read about uh, the saints mostly in India, but also Buddhism and Sufism and Christianity and Christian mysticism and the saints, and so I was like, "Well, they could do it. Why couldn't I?" Did you get there? So I was did, very, you get, did you I get was,
0: there? Did you find Nirvana? Um,
1: that's an interesting question. I yes, um, but so you achieved under- what you set
0: out to like, what you what you wanted to fulfill in a way.
1: Well, in a way, but what I what I understood is that yes, through those meditations, there were some definite, profound experiences, but. The thing is, in the last chapter and epilogue of my book, I really tie it all together of what I learned and where I came from, from that journey. Um, But then the third kind of um, person that joins are the kamikazes. Those are the ones that will die or kill for the leader. Those are the ones in Jim Jones. Those are the ones, you know, at the insurrection on January 6th that would have, if they could have hung the vice president, you know, those are the ones that are just die hard. They've come to the abyss and jumped off the abyss of reality and Mm -hmm. jumped off. So those three, they kind of intermingle and they can intermingle. When people ask me, what is the characteristic of a cult? First thing I say is if you're with an ideology or a religion or whatever, It really has nothing to do with the size of it. You know, there's 150 of us, you know, there's 74 million people in this country that are involved in this, that, this or that or the other. Um, The first clue, there's a difference between Socratic teaching and non-Socratic teaching. Non-Socratic teaching means that there's there's a, an idea on the table, and you discuss it, and you argue it, and you give your viewpoint, and you question it, and you come away with your own conclusion. But that's a Socratic, sorry. And so a non-Socratic is when you don't get to question that this is it, this is the dogma, you believe it or get out. And so many of our religions... They may be old, they may be ancient, but if they're still in the non-Socratic teaching, uh, be very careful because if they don't let you question, if they don't let you debate or whatever, or bring your own conclusions to the table, be careful because it's an indoctrination. Mm. So many people, when I say, oh, we're not brainwashed because typically the definition of brainwash is that you are radicalized in a thinking, usually by coercion or imprisonment or torture. We weren't radicalized. We had our, we came in there with already the ideas we were looking for. So many people that are doing the things that they're doing today in religion or politics were raised on this. This is all they knew. Right. You know, mm. so when we point the finger and say that person's brainwashed, we take the responsibility away from them. Mm-hmm. We make them a victim. Right. And sometimes they are from victim of disinformation, but sometimes they're the perpetrator, mm. you know? So mm. we have to be very, very careful. And they may inadvertently be the perpetrator, right. like I and everybody else in the Buddha field. It's like, yeah, a lot of things happen to me. Do I still love them? Yes. Do of I course. forgive them? Yes. I do. And I'm sure there's a,
0: the part of you that, doesn't regret a lot of that either, that it's shaped who you are now and what you know now. I have one final question before we go. The person that's listening that is totally questioning or wondering or can identify that they have a narcissist in their life that's quite close to them. Do you have one thing or something to say to them? Obviously they need to read your book because I think this is how we, we really not heal, we grow from other people's experiences and stories and we can connect sure. and be me too, oh my goodness, and hear that very one thing that we needed to hear to see things differently. Is sure. there anything else to add?
1: Well, yeah. If you go to my website, Radia, I'm going to spell this for you because everybody throws this H everywhere. <laughs> so it's R-A-D-H-I-A, it's like radhia Gleis, G-L-E-I-S dot com. If you go to my media page, you'll see um, I was asked by Global Woman magazine to write an article on just that, how to recognize a narcissist. And so it's a very succinct and very good article on how to recognize a narcissist and what to do when you find yourself amongst one. And first of all, run like hell yeah, right. <laughs> um, because be- don't try and change them because you won't. And don't think that you're smarter than them because you're not. They become extremely skilled mm. in doing what they do because it's life threatening to them if they cannot fulfill their narcissistic supply. Yeah. So I do talk that's that's an article that uh, awesome. I think is worth reading.
0: We'll link it in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. The name of your book for anybody that's looking for that, could you just let us know?
1: Yes, and it is available on Amazon. And I also did an audible version for those who don't have time to read or don't want to read. And it's in my voice. So who knows the the sarcasm better than me, right? (laughs) Exactly. So the, the name of the book, the whole name is The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciple of Narcissistic Leaders. How My Years in a Notorious Cult Parallel Today's Cultural Mania. And it's at uh, barnesandnoble.com. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. You know, it's in Goodreads. So it's available wherever. Everywhere
0: that there is books, it is there.
1: Exactly. And I will
0: also link to your website as well. I've thoroughly loved mm-hmm. this talking to you today. You've opened up my mind and just, I think for a lot of people, like I said, there's going to be that me too element, that aha moment, I think. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, I'm very excited for everybody to be able to learn Mm -hmm. from you as well.
1: Very awesome. Very fun talking to you all the way to Australia. Wow. (laughs) Technology.
0: Wow. There you go. Now, before I wrap that up, I've just got to tell you something really funny that's happened. I am not in the studio recording this. I'm actually on leave at the moment and I'm recording this under the covers because (laughs) that's what we do. But I'm sitting here under the covers and (laughs) it's almost like, you know, when you're in the shower and you can hear, you think you hear, you always think you hear a burglar. (laughs) I'm under the covers and someone slammed a door and I can't work out. I'm home alone (laughs) and I'm too scared to pull my head out and see what's going on out there. It's also really hot under here. Anyway, I do hope that you enjoyed that episode. It was fascinating to me. I had so many questions, like I said, at the beginning for Radia. And I just feel like what she was able to talk about and then what she recognised in terms of narcissistic leaders and tendencies is something that a lot of us can really relate to or at least even maybe we've never thought about it before. I do want to reiterate that uh, idea that I shared about what Christine Northrup uh, found with her patients and that was that they would she'd start to treat them they'd start to get better and then all of a sudden they'd digress and end up back where they started and i just think it's fascinating to look at this connection between our emotional health and how it can show up physically and that's what was happening for her patients but she did identify that she believed that all of these women that she was seeing, the ones that weren't getting better, had a narcissist in their, in their life, whether it was a father figure or whether it was their partner. And it wasn't until that relationship was over or dealt with in the right way that these women would get better. And I just find that fascinating. I think it's really important for us to really realise how much of a connection there is between our emotional and mental health and how that shows up for us physically physically. So I do hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Like always, I would absolutely love it if you could go ahead and just rate and just, yeah, just rate and review it. (laughs) Just do that. Rate and review the podcast. Um, I literally do a happy dance when I see a new review. So please go ahead and do that. It's not that hard. You literally just scroll down and find the stars and tick the box and write something nice that'd be lovely but until next time as always it's time to say goodbye and i do hope that this episode has left you feeling happier healthier and better listener